0: Welcome to the International Bus Podcast, brought to you by Workby. I'm your co-host, Tanya Falkner. And I'm your co-host, Robert Rogie. Our guest in today's episode is Catherine Richards-Golini. Catherine is a language consultant at Lay Summaries. She's also the director of the European Association of Language Teachers for Healthcare and a medical English trainer, specializing in training professionals who use English for medical purposes. Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. Oh, thank you for asking me.
1: So I guess that like in our preparation here, we were we were laughing before the podcast about the, you know, what lay means. Because like just the word lay, first of all, like, uh, you know, non, non-native speakers maybe don't know what we mean by lay. You know, are these like potato chip summaries or like are they like Frito-Lay summaries or... You see, uh, that course. means
2: nothing to me. So, obviously, lay means something to you in your variety of English, relevant to potato chips. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lay is essentially, it's, it's non-professional, isn't it? Non-professional. And by professional, we mean uh, you haven't trained. You're you're not a professional with the training, with the education, et cetera, et cetera. So, that's how I use lay. Of course, there may be other people listening who use it entirely differently. <laughs>
0: and could you also share with us what it means in terms of lay you know lay summaries lay audiences
2: right um, yeah i think the european commission or the european union there's a new law coming into play this year i believe where pharmaceutical companies who have previously published their their clinical trial summaries of new pharmaceutical products they've been publishing these for uh, professionals and they have been pretty impenetrable to regular joes on the street people like you and me who I, I assume you don't have a background in in medicine neither do i actually i'm not medically trained so the european commission union whoever it is has decided that actually it's not fair to present uh, patients with pharmaceuticals and drugs And leaflets that they can't understand or clinical trial summaries tells you how these have been tested, where they've been tested, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be a material produced that we can all understand. That's essentially it, I think.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you know when a material can be understood?
2: (laughs) That's a good question, isn't it? I don't think we do, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of research that I'm aware of has focused on those packaging inserts that accompany our medicines, you know, the stuff we get in the pharmacy. Now, that's been a legal obligation to, to have a packaging insert for quite a number of years now. And a lot of the research is centered on that. And, yeah, how do we know that people are understanding the same thing? This is particularly true when you talk about risk. They, I don't think they know whether we understand the same thing if we see numbers, if risk is expressed as numbers, or if risk is expressed as words. There is conflicting results there. We seem to overestimate in some cases, underestimate. Yeah, it's a um, good question. How do we know? don't know. <laughs> I suppose right. the process involves asking the right questions of your, the people, your patients who are, who are testing your text Have they understood what you want them to understand? And you would be asking the kind of questions that would hopefully give you that information. Mm
1: -hmm. Right, right. And in any case, I suppose it's more understandable than whatever was the original source. Exactly,
2: exactly, exactly. Cutting out the terminology, cutting out the stuff that would be considered jargon, actually, outside the field of pharmaceuticals.
1: Right. Right.
0: Before we go further into detail, actually, while we were explaining terms, could you also, for our listeners, quickly go over what a clinical trial is? Because I think a lot of people in the localization industry might not be as familiar with it. And it'd be great if you could explain that for us.
2: I should say, first off, that that's not my background. So God help us if we've got any clinical trial experts listening to this. But um, a clinical trial is when a new product, a new pharmaceutical, undergoes a series of tests. It's come out of the lab and it's being tested on humans. And that's a clinical trial. Perfect. Thank you.
1: Maybe you don't know the answer to this, but like, what's the scale of clinical trials? Like, How, how many clinical trials are going on at any one time? In, for... I don't
2: know the answer to that, but given that that would also be a legal obligation, I mean, clearly pharmaceutical companies can't release a product onto the market without being pretty sure that it's going to work or it's not going to kill us at the very least. So any product that needs to be marketed is going to undergo clinical trials. Now, the question is, how many new products are being brought onto the market? I don't know, but I would imagine an awful lot.
1: Right, right. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting industry. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. There's lots of money there, an awful lot of money, new developments, new technologies, new this, new that, new the other. And, of course, clinical trials are taking place in every country in Europe, and these clinical trial summaries – that the lay summaries will need to be translated into the language anywhere that clinical trial was conducted. There may be three or four countries across Europe. Those clinical trial summaries will need to be translated as lay summaries into those three or four different languages.
0: So as a, as a language consultant, I believe you're rewriting clinical trial summaries for the layperson, right? So what does your process look like from, from the first touchpoint to the delivery of your work? You would have to speak to Lay
2: Summaries, David McGinn, who is the man behind Lay Summaries, the company. Uh-huh. I've been brought on board as a, as a language consultant, so I'm not involved in the process until the end when I will be involved to cast my expert eye if you like over what has been produced so if the process for the lay clinical trial summary you need to speak to somebody who's, who's much more involved with that and that'd be someone like David McGinn or you know the, the people who are doing these these uh, translations and reworkings if you like I come in at the very end of the process, I'm afraid, because I can't really answer that question.
1: (laughs) Right. So you're kind of like you're almost like doing the final like proofreading and confirmation step.
2: I mean, I don't have a medical background. My background is in applied linguistics and my doctoral thesis looked at patient information medical patient information rather than pharmaceutical and i looked at you know the language that was being used actually specific to radiography so this is what what i do i look at the how the language is being used to express things and and whether or not perhaps i feel that it could be expressed in a different way or perhaps it's potentially confusing or complex or it's actually quite difficult to simplify language without making it sound a little banal i think and that's i think my role in in lay summaries
0: I have read on your blog at Lay Summaries that a clinical trial combines various phases. So are you part of all the phases or like No. No. Mm-hmm. No I'm not. No. Okay. So what would be your part then?
2: As far as I know, I mean we the the, the law isn't in place yet. So the, this company is so new that the clinical trials we haven't really done many <laughs> because the law isn't in place yet. There's no obligation for any manufacturer to produce these and if there's no obligation yet they're not going to do them this law is being phased in this year so i would be coming in at the end of the process to see what and, and to make suggestions if you like um, a consulting eye if you see if you see what i mean right
1: so will the law take effect like completely in 2019 or is it
2: i believe it's being phased in but i believe it's taking effect by the end of this year again you're probably asking the wrong person if you want this level of yeah. detail i'm a linguist
1: right right Cool. So what tools do you use then for your your part of the lay summaries?
2: Well, one thing that can be used is something that is corpus linguistics. I don't know if you're familiar with with corpora and, and corpus linguistics, enormous databases of language to, I mean, we're talking millions or even billions of words. To check that something that's been expressed in a lay summary is considered perhaps standard, is appropriate recognizable. And you can use a corpora, huge corpora, like the, well, I don't know, medi- there's a medical corpus, which runs into the billions of words. And you can check that this, this way of phrasing something is appropriate, that it's recognizable, that we're not making it up as we go along, if you see what I mean. Right, that's, right. One, that's one tool that can be used. Another tool might be simply one's sense, one's expertise looking at language and thinking, I'm a lay person, do I understand this?
1: Yeah, that seems like a pretty good benchmark.
2: You know, the problem with uh, medical specialists is that they find it very difficult <laughs> to see language from the point of view of a lay person. And that's quite true, I think, in, 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 across the board. Yeah. Medical specialists, or any specialist from any field, find it difficult to undo all the knowledge what is obvious to them, they find very difficult to imagine, you know, not being obvious to the rest of us.
1: Right, right. So here's kind of an odd question, but like I'm thinking about lay summaries and I'm thinking about trying to express in plain language something that can be quite complicated. And I have, a, I have a background in technical writing too, so I kind of right, have, a, right, yeah. you know, an idea. But what I'm wondering is like, where do, and to the best of your knowledge, like do visuals fit in? Like do do people yeah Yeah, people try to produce more visuals uh, in order to explain things better?
2: Yeah, there's a definitely definitely a a move towards uh, using more visuals. Sometimes visuals don't help because they're the wrong visuals. But I've I've just read actually just as I was waiting for. This podcast, I was reading a lovely little article about a gastroenterologist who was writing, saying that she found it very difficult to talk about pooping with her patients. She said, after the age of two, you know, we don't talk about it anymore. Everyone gets embarrassed and, you know, but in that situation, you need to talk about it. And she referred to that lovely Bristol poop scale. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's effortlessly simple and it works beautifully. Every patient in the world can point (laughs) to the image and say, that's how it looks. You know, so there's no confusion or embarrassment, and it's, it works beautifully. So yes, visuals are incredibly useful, as long as they're the right visuals, not to use them simply to decorate the page.
0: So for the written part, I mean, you're obviously the one that's looking at it in the end to kind of see if the language is okay. Would there be something similar for the graphic part of it? Oh,
2: I'm sure they would have a specialist somebody who, who knows how to use graphics. I mean, I, I think I, my conversations with, with David McMinn, he's, he's very, very keen to get it right, and he's very aware that so much patient information has, is not right it's overly simplified it's overly banal people using images where they haven't they don't help whatsoever i mean these are skills you know people are skilled in communicating whether it be visuals or with words or with graphics or colors and there are people out there who can do it very well indeed mhm wow and this is, you know, it's quite important. You know, we're talking about pharmaceutical products and how they've been tested and and side effects, and you know, it's very important information. And you, one needs to get it right. We don't want clinical lay summaries being misunderstood by the general public because that's absolutely the opposite of the intention, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Do you ever find that? you have to like watch out for certain types of commercial language since some of these companies i assume have a commercial interest in having the lay summary be expressed in a certain way
2: um yeah that, that's an interesting question i don't think so but again you you may you know somebody like david mcminn may be a better person to speak yeah. to that because that's the the more sort of yeah the 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 business side of things although if i produce a product if i'm a pharmaceutical company i've produced and tested and trialed a product i'm talking about who and where and how many months and what was observed the cohort group etc i'm not bringing in the names of other products i'm not bringing in the names of so maybe that's that's not something that's an issue i'm just thinking through here i'd it's maybe it's not an issue
1: I bet it. I, yeah, I know that I think about it. I bet it's not either. I mean, it's a pretty serious field. Uh, yeah, people can't just, uh, you know, spin the lay summary.
2: <laughs> well, you you say, of course, you know, clinical trial summaries, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think they can spin it if they want. Oh, <laughs> ah, okay. Well, you know, that's, that's an altogether another discussion, isn't it? Um, okay. But, I mean, these things are regulated. They're regulated. And it's a serious business, as you say. And I I, I think uh, we're looking at producing simple and short summaries. That's the other thing. You know, a clinical trial summary can go on for pages. Uh, A lay trial summary can't be pages because no one's going to read it.
3: Hey. As you know, we like to keep things mostly non commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics. And it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You, know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wurby Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast.
0: What would you say are like some of the challenges that the industry is facing overall? Which industry would that be? For clinical trials and creating lay summaries for them?
2: Well, this is so new that there isn't a, cl- a lay summary industry to speak of. I mean, this yeah. law isn't even right. law, right? Mm-hmm. And, and certainly David McMinn's company is one of the very first, that one of the only ones that I'm aware of. There will be others, but he's very much um, he's on the ball there because he's seen this coming from a long way off. Yeah, that's
1: interesting. No, it's only
2: the last year that people have been talking about this. Mm -hmm. And I know nothing about the clinical trial um, industry because that would be pharmaceuticals. And I'm an applied linguist, so I can't answer that question either. (laughs) So does lay
1: summaries mostly work in, like when you're writing the lay summary before localizing it, is the company just working in English? Are you also like... Rewriting lay or writing lay summaries in, for example, German and then translating that into other languages. Yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, everything, um, right? There's certainly this is a European thing and and clinical trials take place in different countries. They, they, you know, they're not necessarily going to be taking place only in one country for one product. You might have one product, but the clinical trial has taken place in four or five different countries. The clinical trial, the original clinical trial summary may be published in four or five languages Therefore, the lay summary will need also to be translated into those languages. And so certainly lay summaries, the company that that we're referring to, they will be translating as well into the original, the the language of the original clinical trial.
1: Oh, That's a cool project. I'm I'm thinking about the delivery of the lay summary, right? I'm imagining that, you know, you're a patient and when you're introduced to the idea of the clinical trial, I, I suppose you're probably talking to a doctor at that time, right? Yes. True?
2: Yes. I've asked myself that actually as well. You know, why, when would a patient want to read a lay summary? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would imagine that these are a special group of patients. They may be a patient with a long term condition, a chronic condition or a long term condition that requires long term medication. Maybe a experimental medication, perhaps. These could be people who, unfortunately, are suffering. And this is not a clinical trial summary for for a flu jab, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and these people, perhaps, they might be considered expert patients as well. There's a group of patients we call expert patients. They often know an awful lot more than their GP about the condition that they suffer from. They're well informed. They want to be informed. And I suspect it's this group of people in particular who will be interested in reading lay trial summaries. I right. don't imagine that the average man on the street will be overly bothered. I mean, the average man on the street, from what we know, doesn't even read the packaging inserts in the medicine he picks up in the pharmacy. So it's unlikely that he's going to be reading lay summaries.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering what the role of the doctor is there, you know? Because, like, let's say you didn't have a lay summary and you just had the the regular summary. Yeah,
2: uh,
1: yeah. You know, I, I can see the doctor... F- you know essentially performing as an interpreter of that yeah. summary saying okay you know this is your condition and you know whatever we've tried till now hasn't worked so you might try this clinical trial yeah. and then there would be like I, I suppose he's probably has to present some kind of piece of paper about it but then he's going to have to interpret it in the office and uh, I guess I'm wondering about that. But then I, I you know, with the case of a LA lay summary, I suppose that patients often are given them, and then they take them home where they can read them afterwards or something. I'm well, just making this up. What, yeah, I
2: mean, yeah, no, it's, it's certainly what should happen with the, you know, medical patient information in general, right? I mean, if you're going into hospital, you'd be, you'd expect to pick up a leaflet in the in the doctor's surgery or studio or whatever unfortunately it doesn't always happen and I I, I think we should also be aware that me- medical information per se is ubiquitous in certain countries you know it, it, english-speaking countries anglo-saxon speaking countries if you like the UK Canada Australia the states patient information is ubiquitous it isn't the case in many other medical systems which tend to be less patient-centered by that I mean doctors doctors And patients just sit up and be patient. You know, it's patients have perhaps less confidence to ask about what they're taking and what's in this, and to ask for opinions and to ask for more information. Patients perhaps don't want more information in some countries. Northern European countries in general, they they are more patient centred. But here in Switzerland, for example, I don't know how many Swiss people listen to your podcast, but. This is not a patient-centered medical system. And medical information in general, you don't get it much. You're not offered it when you go to see a doctor. And I suspect that clinical trial summaries, uh, lay summaries, are not going to be offered either. You're going to have to search them out in certain countries. But in other countries, I think you'll find, yes, as you say, I mean, if a doctor is suggesting a switch of medicine, this might be a specialist doctor, an oncologist. Suggesting a switch of medicine, suggesting a switch of new treatment program, that might be the opportunity to be delivering a lay summary in in the form of a leaflet into interested patients.
0: Are lay summaries then, are they provided with the company, with the pharmaceutical company? Do they come with the products?
2: Pharmaceutical companies will be legally obliged to produce these. So I would imagine that they will be legally obliged to have them on their websites or to have them on the product website or, you know, to make them available. Mm -hmm. And this is all about greater transparency, um, greater transparency for the patient, for the end user.
1: Yeah, you know what you said about the different medical systems. Uh, what was the term too? The the super patient one. The oh, super the
2: expert patient. Expert the e- patient.
1: Yeah. yeah. So like my mother was kind of an expert patient, and that was in the states. Yeah. You know, because I'm from the states, and so I've spent a lot of time in hospitals and stuff, and with right. doctors. And then, like as an expat, like I lived in Barcelona for a very long time, and I I had a lot of things with the hospitals here because I I tore a ligament in my knee or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh it is quite surprising the difference in the way that they perceive their roles as doctors cuz you're right it, it it was always difficult in Spain to get any kind of information from yeah. the doctor like yeah. th- it was like you were supposed to sit there and they were going to tell you what to do and then you were supposed to go and like you start to ask questions but they're like I got to hustle in the next patient, you know. Yes. And uh in the states, things were a lot more low key. Like the doctor would sit and talk with you until you were finished. <laughs> you know? Yes.
2: Yeah, and yeah. I don't think a doctor in the states would be horrified if his patient said he'd been online and he'd gotten some information and this is what he'd found out. I think the Spanish doctor would poo-poo the whole thing. Now we're back to poo again. I'm sorry. I keep bringing <laughs> this back to the poo. But you know, I've seen. I've seen here the the the, the oh the internet oh. Goodness me, what on earth are you going online? for? Ch- now, you know, 80, 90 percent of users in some countries are using the Internet for health related reasons in some countries. And, yeah. it's, you know, it's considered to be you know, a standard procedure for an expert patient who is perfectly capable of sourcing some information and then discussing it with their doctor. Yeah. Uh, in other countries, this would be frowned upon
1: or catching mistakes, even, you know, yeah, Well, like,
2: even, even, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I wasn't going to mention that because <laughs> I didn't. But yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
1: Well, I mean, you know, hospitals are massive institutions, and they have processes. And if something about your patient or your case doesn't fit in there, like things can things get missed, you know, I've seen yes. it many times. And, and I, I, you know, I don't get I was never like upset about it, like, oh, this thing got missed, because I mean, they're they're seeing so many patients and all these different patients have different things. And I mean, it's a massive, you know, complex. But you know, the patient uh, having, you know, being informed can make a huge difference, like uh... It
2: makes an enormous difference. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is true for any kind of medical information, be it procedural, maybe you're going in for a radiography scan, and you've never had one, and you don't know what it's all about. And just being able to read that leaflet at home, because, you know, a lot of patients don't take in what the doctor is saying. And they need a little bit more time to go home and read or maybe to go online. Maybe there's been a recommended website. And you can imagine if there's a new drug and, you know, it's brand new and you you might want to go and read and find out, Okay, you know, just to reassure yourself to find out what is this and where's it been tested and blah, blah, blah. Information is key. There are there's a plethora of papers showing the importance of information for patients. You know, for recovery, for the way people feel when they're experiencing medical, you know, medical interactions.
0: Information is key.
1: And localization is like a lock that unlocks the door or something.
0: So, like I said at the beginning, that you're also a trainer for uh, medical English professionals. How do you do that, or what's your what do you focus on?
2: Well, you know, my background is in English language training and Mm -hmm. I work currently I'm working with biomedical analysts and lab technicians. These are people who do all the testing in the labs. I have spent 10 years working with radiographers and these are the people who who carry out the MRIs and the CT scans, X-rays in hospitals. I've taught nurses, I've taught doctors. And I would say that your question what do you focus on? I you know this is a branch of English for specific purposes. So what you focus on is what the customer needs, what the student needs and that's going to vary from one place to another from one person to another and certainly from one job to another my biomedical analysts actually don't do much talking strange but true they spend an awful lot of time in a lab peering over microscopes but they spend an awful lot of time dealing with test kits and protocol instructions and they need to be able to be 100% accurate and most of these protocols are either in German or they're in English in Europe Or at least in Switzerland, I should say. They don't come in Italian, which is what we speak, actually, in my part of Switzerland. But it's very unusual to find these test kits translated into Italian. So these these people have to be able to read German and read English 100% accurately, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Now, with radiographers, it's an entirely different thing. These, These people are working with patients and they're talking to patients and they have to be able to reassure and explain and ask for certain positions to be taken without resorting to the manhandling of the body, which is so often the case when people can't explain in English to another person. They just don't speak and they start pushing and shoving. And so my job is, you know, it varies very much on who I'm teaching and uh, what their job entails, what they need in English to do their job.
1: I suppose Mm -hmm. you have a multicultural element there too, because so many doctors are uh, maybe uh, non-native English speakers that have moved. uh, right.
2: This is lingua franca English at the end of the day. This is lingua franca English. So, you know, what's being spoken here and I'm sure it'd be exactly the same in Luxembourg and every country in Europe is this is English between two people who neither of whom speak English as a first language.
0: So in yeah. in some sorts also for them, you're doing what you're kinda of doing with lay like summaries. You're teaching them how they can explain themselves for or with clients. Or with
2: exactly con- in, in a concise simple way, minimizing any possibility of misunderstanding or confusion. And that's not as easy as it sounds, because, you know, a lot of medical English, the terminology stuff is Latin based. Now, for Italian speakers, that's actually not a problem. The problem comes in how to explain things like the noise of the MRI scanner. They don't have the vocabulary to, to, to do that, because, it, it, you know, that doesn't come in terminology. And it certainly doesn't come in general English courses. How? you talk about contrast medium, which is the dye that you may have injected into you if you're taking certain scans. How do you explain that if you don't have the vocabulary? So I focus very much on vocabulary and the vocabulary they need to explain in a concise, simple way to their patients what is happening and what is going to happen.
1: Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then how do you try to keep the terminology consistent then with, uh, well, I guess when you're training, you're not so concerned about Terminology consistency. That's more with the lace. Yeah, that's more translation,
2: isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think language teaching and translation and editing, they're all related, but they're all different.
0: <laughs> right. Do you yourself translate it all?
2: No, I mean, I I have done, but I don't. (laughs) If somebody asks me, I I will look and see what they want translated. But I believe that translation is best left to the professionals, just as teaching is best left to the professionals, I should add. I think there are an awful lot of jobs that, that, how can I put this politely? We assume that anyone can do, but in reality, you can do it when you're trained to do it when you're a professional. And I don't like translating for that reason, because I'm not trained to be a translator. Mm -hmm.
1: I think the translators listening are really uh, happy right now. Yeah,
0: they will very <laughs> much appreciate very that.
2: <laughs> well, I don't. You know, it's like teaching. I get annoyed. I think, I think teachers are often... This is particularly true, I should say, in medical English. The word professional in my field is not used to talk about me. It's used to talk about the medical professional sort of uh, what am I I'm the one who's responsible for the training of these trainee radiographers or nurses in the classroom I'm the professional but we have this attitude that if you speak English you can teach it well no you can't (laughs) it doesn't work that way if you speak English or you're confident in English doesn't mean you can translate it right Mm -hmm. or any language for that matter
0: absolutely Especially in such a tricky industry, you know, when you talk medical medical terms and everything, that's just not something that you should be translating if you're not a professional.
2: Absolutely. And, and interpreting, of course, is, you know, so much medical interpreting is done by non-professional interpreters. It's done by family members. It's done by the guy down the corridor who just happens to be... A native speaker of this language there 's an awful lot of non professional medical interpreting going on in our hospitals. And we can understand why that happens you know there aren 't the budgets or perhaps there simply is, there aren 't the people with those minority languages available or it 's the wrong time of day and, and there 's nobody available. but it really begs the question of, of what is being interpreted and how how successful that medical interaction really is when you 've got a non professional interpreter who may not even know the patient and had no background in medical language doing the interpreting. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know,
1: this is all pretty interesting. I just think that when the lay summaries mission gets underway and everything is going good, then maybe it's time to swing back around and start working on the penmanship of doctors. <laughs> oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, because the
1: handwriting, you know, like the we, 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 should, we should have like lay summaries of the handwriting <laughs> of the doctors. <laughs>
2: I, th- I think they do it deliberately, actually. I think it's just one more thing to put themselves kind of above the rest of us. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah,
1: I mean, they, when you think about it, it is. It's a, it's a fine example of not feeling the burden that. Of communication, or it being exactly. important.
0: Absolutely, it just feels like we're not supposed to know what it is.
2: Exactly, and how ludicrous is that? The pharmacists always seem to know what it is, though, isn't that strange? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they yeah. have a lot of practice Very reading true. that yes, those
1: handwriting. Yes, you yes, know. That's true. Yeah, they they probably recognize the doctor's slip, like with the who the doctor was based on the, yeah, on the exactly. handwriting.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> cool. It was a, it was really interesting. I think that uh, a lot of our listeners are going to be interested just to learn about another industry and another group of content, and you know what the challenges yeah. are, and uh, yeah. a little bit about the regulations and what's
2: yeah. and, and one that might summers. be you know a growth industry for for translators actually in Europe over the next few years. Yeah. Cool. All
0: right. Well, that was another episode of the International Buzz Podcast. Thank you for joining us, Catherine.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks.